One, two, three. Turn on the bubble machine. Welcome to Three Song Stories. We're the show that gets our guests talking about themselves and their lives by leveraging the power of the song story and the way music binds itself to memory. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. Our guest today is Jack Massing. Jack's bio starts with, Jack has been interested in creative art since an early age, and I think it's fair to say that means he's lived his life completely steeped in art. He settled in Houston, Texas in the early 80s where he met Michael Galbraith and formed the Art Guys in 1983. It was a conceptual art collaboration that ended after 37 years in 2019 when Michael passed away. Over the decades, Jack and Michael worked to challenge and expand the dialogue and boundaries of art with hundreds of exhibitions in traditional museum and gallery spaces, as well as staged exhibitions and performances in all sorts of non-traditional venues, think like grocery stores and street corners. Their direct-to-the-public methodology often circumvented the established art world and incorporated a wide range of not-so-conventional materials and activities in an effort to make art more accessible and to challenge notions about perceived divisions between art and life. He's currently working on William Wegman and Jack Massing, Too Clever by Half, a call-and-response project at the Bob Rauschenberg Gallery that will remain on display and will evolve until March of 2022. We met him when he came in to talk about that show on our radio show, Gulf Coast Life Arts Edition, and we're so pleased he agreed to come back to share his three song stories with us. Hey there, Jack. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back. It was nice to meet you last time you were here. I was hoping you'd come back, and you did. And here we are. And I brought my radio voice. (laughs) Um, Okay. Where did you grow up, and how would you characterize the musical background of your childhood? Well, I haven't grown up yet, but Buffalo was my birthplace, and I spent the first 18, 19 years of my life there. Buffalo, New York. Actually, I I lived between... Buffalo and Niagara Falls in a place called Tanawanda, hmm. which was an Indian name, actually. And it basically meant the land of the swift water, which was <clears throat> the upper Niagara River between Lake Erie and, and where it went over the falls in Niagara. What was going on musically around you as a kid? Um, I, I have very distinct memories of my older siblings freaking out over the Beatles when they invaded in 64 when I was about five. You were the youngest of the four? I was the youngest, yep. And so um, the Beatles were what was going on mostly. What was happening with your parents? Well, my father, <clears throat> he's an artist or was an artist as well, and um, he always had a, a basement studio, basically. And he listened to jazz. He was a jazzaholic. Hmm. What about your mom? Anything coming out of her? Mom loved um, Irish music because she was from Irish descent, and um, she liked uh, kind of like the 40s and 50s swing, you know, and big band stuff. Any musical memories coming from your grandparents? Well, my grandfather, being from Ireland, and he sang a lot. Um, I guess, you know, you would classify him as an Irish tenor, and um, he was very funny, and he sang around the around the house from when we visited him and he threw his voice hmm. he um he always had this little voice that um he'd look around the room and then go hey what are you doing <laughs> it was sort of 
a grump, you know, a gravelly voice off in the corner, and that was a little man, and he would make us look around for that little man. Hmm. Yeah, that was fun. How much older were your brothers and sisters? Well, we're all fairly close. It's about um, two years apart. Okay. So as they started getting older, besides the Beatles, did they influence your musical stylings in other ways? Yeah, my brother Pete, which is, he, he has a, a twin, Paula. Paula and Pete were twins, and then my older sister, Pat. And um, and then Jack, Paula, and, Pete. Yeah, I know. I was the oddball. <laughs> and I really looked a lot like the mailman. Um, but anyway, the <laughs> that's a, a bad old joke. Um, my brother influenced me a lot because he got into like um, a pretty kind of weird psychedelic stuff and um, um, introduced me to um, a lot of strange music. Such um, as? Well, we, we would listen to comedy albums a lot. Uh-huh. So um, um, Bob and Ray and um, Firesign Theater was right. a, big, a big favorite. Um, of course, Monty Python was part of our – but we didn't listen to Monty Python records. Um, we listened to um, – we had a couple record players in the house. My dad had his that we couldn't play on and then my sister, Pat, had one. And uh, that's what we put the records on for the Beatles. And I can remember they were freaking out, and we would dance in the basement. And were you really, freaking out too, or were you like, "What? I didn't you, know what's what going, going on here?" Yeah, I didn't really understand it. <laughs> they were, but I, you know, of course, joined the enthusiasm. Uh, how and, were you first exposed to Monty Python? Do you remember? Because I very clearly remember my first Monty Python when I was about twelve, and I was like, "What? Uh, okay, this is something that I'm going to have to pay attention to." Yeah, I don't I don't remember the exact the exact thing. I do remember musically one um I was pretty young, maybe 3 or 4. And um we went to the circus and um that blew me away because I'd never seen like a small orchestra playing and I didn't realize that that that's how it worked. You know, I didn't I I hadn't conceptualized it. Yeah. I get. I see what you're saying. And the, so, and the clowns and the drummers and the guys walking around and like the little, you know, little wandering brass band. I was like, holy crap! That's how that. That's how that works. <laughs> uh, can you remember a time when you were young when music moved you somehow, or caught your attention in a way that stuck? Hmm. There's. I I remember um, when Yes came out with Yes songs. And I listened to that really deeply. I think that may have been one of the more kind of transformative experiences with music. How old would you have been when that came out? Probably 16 or 17. Gotcha. Um, did you play any instruments? I did. I mean, well, not really. I, I, I went to um, the drumming class and to, uh, I, I studied a little bit in high school um, percussion, but I never really... I never really dove into it too deeply. If you could play a musical instrument instantly right now, which would you choose? Player piano. Player piano. That's a pretty interesting answer. That's a. Mm-hmm. Mm. Would you just like uh, instantly learn how to feed in the, I the notes? Press one button. 
I think that's actually one you could accomplish. Oh, I know. I, I would be a virtuoso. Usually it's, like a, usually it's like a magic question, like the Matrix. But yeah. for you, it's just all you have to do is get a player piano. Immediate gratification. <laughs> okay, let's get to the music. Let's get to your first song. What is it and why is it? Well, it's, it's a Dave Brubeck song that was on the album Time Out, and it's Blue Rondo a la Turk. And would you like to just go ahead and listen to it? Yeah, let's listen to it. As we listen to it, I just want to give you a little tidbit. In 2004, Dave Brubeck sat in that exact oh spot. Oh, my Lord, that's amazing. When he came to Sanibel for a show, and I got to drive out to Sanibel and bring him in. And then we interviewed him on Gulf Coast Live, and he was right in that place. <sighs> So let's listen to it. This is uh, Blue Rondo a la Turk, Dave Brubeck Quartet, 1959 album Time Out. That was really nice. So it's funny when you um, hear music on a certain device that you have at home or your shop or whatever, and then you hear it on a headset like I'm wearing now, and it, it strikes you differently. You hear different I mean, it's just a different sound. Everything makes a, a, the same song differently mm-hmm. on whatever you're played on. So, A lot of space in the song when yeah. you listen to it this way. Yeah, there's a lot more space and nuance. And But, you know, I remember kind of every beat in that thing. I listened to it so many times. And <clears throat> my first experience was with my father in the, in the basement studio. And he had, um, he had Take 5. I mean... Um, time Out. Time Out. And Take 5 was the big hit. And everybody really liked that. And you probably, most listeners know Take 5 from the Time Out album, but they don't. I mean, Blue Rondo a la Turk is, is on the album. And, it, and to me, that was my favorite one. And I just like all the the the, the changes in the beat and the drops in octaves and then the the subtle, like, shifts. Um, my father was <clears throat> really good musically. He could play the guitar and the piano by ear. So he um, he actually taught me how to play some of those chords in, in the um, later part of the, um, the higher, higher octave um, fingering of the piano. And I, I've never really learned how to play piano that well, but um, we did have a player piano in the house, <laughs> which is... What, I'm still chuckling about that. Yeah, by which way. brought that up. <laughs> uh, but um, and, and when, <laughs> so my father had all these um, kind of cool people as friends, right? He was an artist. He worked during the day. He um, tried to make art at night and went on these um, exhibition things where he would take his paintings and take them to Lake Chautauqua in New York or to um, different parks and have these ex- outdoor exhibitions and try to sell work, and it kind of leans on the Sunday painter um, aspect of the art world, but um, our dad was just amazingly into all kinds of things um, in, uh, relating to art, and because he had these cool friends that were like, and, and a lot of times I reflect back, like when I was a kid, my dad was my dad, but then when I'm older and then I'm thinking of my kid, and he's he's viewing me like in the same ages, and I might have been maybe a little older than my dad. My dad had his family younger than I did, but he um, he was like this cool dude, you know. He had a vest. He went to art shows, <laughs> you know. He uh, 
knew the museum guards, and uh, he had a friend who had a piano business, and we stored a, a baby grand player piano in the house, and he would play it without, you know, the role, and um, he would show me stuff. But he could, he could literally listen to a song and work through in a few minutes and get the chords right and start getting the tempo, and then he could play it. And I just, it just blew my mind. What did his studio look like? I'm trying to picture, like, well, what was, was going on It was down downstairs, there. a wooden stair step all the way down, and um, a fairly unfinished basement in, in, in Tonawanda, New York. And he had tables and easels and a bunch of stuff stacked up and paint. And he would go down there and he would say he was going to go wail away, <laughs> meaning he was just going to wail on a painting, like really abuse it, beat that painting up. And he would put his, you know, he put on Dave Brubeck. Almost every time he went down there, I, it, uh, yeah, maybe my memory of that is, is fictitious, but he listened to jazz so much that it emanated up the staircase. We'd walk by and hear it, and we knew not to bug him most of the time, but oftentimes he invited us down there. And I can remember <clears throat> at a very young age, he gave me um, a box of roofing nails and a hammer. And I started nailing the nails in the bottom step of the staircase on the way down to the to the basement. And I covered quite a bit of it. And he just let me do that, you know. So he was in there working. He turned off his music. And then I was there interacting with him and pounding nails in the bottom step. Uh, and, and that memory came up when I was listening to the song. So it, it's funny to... Um, you know, certain smells give you memory, certain sounds give you memory, certain yeah. songs, certain, um, you know, visually, memories are not as strong, I think, as they are with smell and taste and uh, and sound. Music can bring you to another place immediately. You could try to think of that cliff you were standing on and watching a sunset, but it's a lot more difficult to conjure that up than if you hear a sound or a song and it put it puts you right back in the place. As a visual artist, if you step back and think about that, <clears throat> it's like you're almost at a disadvantage. It, it's, it's true. <laughs> it's true, but I, I feel like the encyclopedic volume of things I looked at up until this point, even the walls of this studio, I can somehow remember that, but I don't necessarily do it in detail. I do, I, I, visually, I remember things and know what I want to do next with that thing rather than, or how to change that thing rather than how to keep it. Uh, music, it, in a way, it's locked in. Yeah, and that's, that's true. And that's especially with recorded music. And I always wondered about, like, a symphony that was written in 1400 or some, you know, a Beethoven sonata, let's say. And it's fascinating to me that somebody would try to, or not somebody, everybody tries to play that and be true to it. You know, and then there's, of course, there's nuances from the, you know, Philadelphia Philharmonic to the Cleveland Symphony or whoever is playing those things. Um, there's going to be a little bit of differences and depending on who's the conductor. Um, but it's really weird that Recorded music ended up trumping 
if I can use that word, uh, the ability for um, an orchestra to play the same thing over and over again because it's live. Even though the notation is locking that into the live performance and then you come you know, up into the 1960s and the Beatles show up and they can't read notation but they can play their song over and over on stage and it's basically exactly the same every time. Yeah. But they're their conduct they're their own conductors. Right. So they they have it locked into their DNA. I heard something on NPR within the last few months that was talking about um, until we could record music, and this may seem obvious, but it kind of crystallized something for me. Until we could record music, if there was music being played, it was necessarily a communal event. Yeah, that's beautiful. You know, it was it was it was the people coming together to experience music. And then as soon as we were able to package it and distribute it, not that live music doesn't still happen, but it took most of that off the table for, like, humanity, mm-hmm. you know, which yeah. I just thought was interesting. It's, it's really wonderful, actually. I mean, it, it changes the way we think because as media changes and, you know, uh, media is – the type of media you're listening to or watching changes constantly. It's always kind of being upgraded. Therefore, our brains are being upgraded along with it, whether we know it or not. What did your dad think of the Beatles? He he liked he liked everything really. He was he was okay with yes. He, he <laughs> you know he didn't favor it, but um, um, but fr- nothing. You didn't bring anything home that your folks were like, okay, uh, what's going on here? No, not really. But I <clears throat> I do remember late in my dad's life, I uh, introduced him to Tom Waits. Oh yeah. He never really knew Tom Waits' stuff, and my dad used to give me you know he'd give me CDs or or tell me what to listen to and. Um, in the jazz, mostly in the jazz world, but um, I gave him a Tom Waits CD, and I said, "Dad, you really should listen to this." And the first couple, you know, minutes he did, he's like, "Ah, oh, yeah, I don't like this too much." I said, "Listen for a little while longer," and then a few months later, he goes, "Man, that Tom Waits guy." <laughs> I think that's the only way you get into Tom Waits. It's, really, it's like drinking black coffee. It's right. like nobody's like, "Ooh, that's the best coffee I've ever drank." Right. <laughs> Right here, here. Taste this, Dad. It's awful. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, but no. He and then he ended up liking Tom Waits, and then he would ask me questions about him and stuff. And uh, anyway, it's, it's interesting. So you, um, if I'm doing the math right, you were in high school right in the middle of the '70s. Yeah. So was your high school experience like what we would picture? You know, in the middle of the '70s, totally. bell bottoms, the whole totally. nine yards. I had powder blue bell bottoms that were my nice pants. <laughs> <laughs> I, and they were really big bell bottoms too. I had puka shell necklace. Um, I had a car before I could drive. Was it a sports car? It was a uh, <laughs> a 1964 convertible um, Mustang. Of course, it was <laughs> with the floorboards rotten out because of the uh, the ice and snow and the salt in Buffalo. And a 64 in the mid-70s was an old car. Yeah, it <laughs> They was. don't age like they, they, like they do now. I, I bought it when I was 15, and um, I started driving it when I was 16. And then I got another car. <laughs> so I had two cars. Did it have a radio in it? It had a radio. And, you know, we had – where I grew up, we had summer and winter cars, basically. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. You, do, you wouldn't want to drive the Mustang in the winter, really, <clears throat> even though this one had pretty soft floorboards. But um, it was a parking problem all the time. Right. Uh, do you remember the first music you owned? 
You know, that's funny. I, I was trying to think of that before I did this show, and I I don't really know because it was kind of shared. Our family shared right. everything, so it was, I don't know. I was really trying hard to think of that. I don't know what it would be. That's okay. And I don't know is a valid answer. Of course to it any is. Any question. I, yes, definitely on this show. Um, first concert you saw? I saw <clears throat> Helen Reddy in the Hollywood Bowl when I was 14, 15. Hollywood Bowl's out in California? Yeah. And what, what were you doing out there? I traveled out there to see um, my... That, that's really not true because I saw some <laughs> symphonies and I... Yeah. No, I'm making a concert, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, concert. Like something like, you know. And and this is a kind of a funny story, but um, my cousin Bob and I, we took the bus from New Jersey where he th- their family lived and we took the Greyhound all the way to L.A. And we're 15 years old. Adventurous. By, by the way. And we had to get to my aunt and uncle's house, my uncle Tom, my mom and his mom's brother. And he was married to Veronica. We called her Ronnie. And um, so we went out to visit Uncle Tom and Aunt Ronnie. <clears throat> and they had to have these two teenagers for about three or four weeks, right? So they didn't know what to do with us. And um, they, uh, Aunt Ronnie said, hey, we got tickets to the Hollywood Bowl. We're going to go to a concert. And I was like, wow, really? And then, you know, she showed me pictures of the Hollywood Bowl, and I was like, oh, my gosh, it's outdoors. It's amazing. And so we went to see Helen Reddy, and um, we were kind of in the middle of the aisle, and I had to use the restroom. So I got up and kind of excused myself through all the knees to get out to the, um, to the aisle. And just as I got to the aisle, someone stepped on my foot, like not just lightly, like crushed it like right across the top of my foot, and it hurt. But I, di- I didn't say anything, and I didn't, I didn't really know who it was because I only saw the foot because I was kind of getting out of the aisle, you know, and I was paying attention to the back seat of the seat in front of me and the person who I was interrupting. And then I looked up, and there was this tall man, and I'm like, God, he looks familiar. And he grabs me because he knew he really crushed my foot, and he kind of grabs my shoulders. And he pulls me over. He says, are you okay? And I said, are you Buddy Epson? <laughs> was it Buddy Epson? And it was Buddy Epson. Buddy Epson stepped on so, your foot? So he walked, <laughs> he walked me up to the top of the uh, aisle where the restrooms back where the restrooms were. Was he just in and the audience? He was in the audience and he was I don't know. I don't know where he came from. Whether he came from another aisle or whatever. And you and recognized him because that he uh, was super Hever, famous. Beverly Hillbillies, yeah, right? Yeah. So I just couldn't believe it. And then um, you know, I come back and I sit down, and my cousin's there, and I said, "Hey, Buddy Epson stepped on my foot." <laughs> he goes, "No, you're lying." <laughs> but it was true. These days, you could have taken a selfie with Buddy Epson. I know. That was, <laughs> what year would that have been? That was like '76 or '75. Um, uh, seen a lot of concerts over the years? I have. And I'm actually, I'm part owner of a bar in Houston now, and we have a stage and music venue. Oh, yeah? So we, we do a lot of sort of singer-songwriter stuff. Hmm. Do you spend and much time there? I do. Um, unfortunately, I've been so busy, I haven't been able to be there a lot. But 
Um, I programmed a few things from I have a lot of musician friends and put them you know on the on the calendar and they play cool um, so we um, we have concerts every Sunday and then we have open mic on Tuesday and Wednesday. what's the place called it's called Cowboy Surfer in Houston, Cowboy Texas. Cowboy Surfer in Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. Okay. Next time I go to Houston. Cowboy Surfer Bar. Um, okay. Well, we'll talk more about Texas and more about art and stuff like that in a little bit. But let's do your second song, man, next. Okay. That's great. This is um, – You do your radio what? voice. Here. You can read my – We book. have More Than I This have, by these. Roxy Music from <laughs> – tell, tell them the album of the year. Do the whole thing. Okay, wait a minute. Where am I starting? Uh, just right here. I just, yeah, I've just got Song two. Okay. Um, so what's the story with that one? No, no. Just, just, just <laughs> announce the song. <laughs> More than this. It's a th- four-minute and 30-second song by Roxy Music off of their Avalon album. 1982. 1982. Yes. Thank you. I, I need help. <laughs> <laughs> That was a very popular song in a popular record. I think it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. But the story is kind of um, awkward and fun, <laughs> um, which is kind of a background storyline of my life, awkward and fun. Um, I, was, uh, I finished college, and I wanted to go on a trip. And I'd saved a lot of money for... Mm, six, eight months. And I had, you know, I had some savings, but um, I really wanted to go to Europe. So, and I had some opportunities in Europe. I had a friend who was working in Berlin that I could actually work with. And then I had another friend in in Paris who, uh, well, she wasn't in Paris yet, but um, she was going to be in Paris studying. And uh, I had a couple other friends that were doing things in Europe. So I thought it would be fun to go. And in preparation to leave, I, of course, was being as frugal as possible and planning the trip. Not only that, but um, um, trying to figure out what to you know, bring, what to travel with. So um, a friend of mine, Pam, who I knew in Houston, um, she actually lives over in um, Jupiter, Florida right now. Um, she's a terrific friend. Um, she gave me a Walkman, a Sony Walkman. So in the early days of Walkman, too. Early days of Walkman. It would have been, uh, it, it was 84, I guess. And um, she had one cassette tape in it and when she gave it to me. Whether she knew the tape was in there or not, I don't, I don't really know, and I don't think I ever asked. But it was Roxy Music. It was Avalon. And I loved the machine itself. It was so small and so well-designed, it was almost the size of a cassette tape. It was just a little bit bigger, and it had these earbuds that you can put in, and and um, I I thought, man, this Walkman is great. I'm going to get all kinds of music as I travel and do all this stuff. But either, and I'm confused whether I was either really lazy or acting like a Zen monk, but um, uh, I never bought any more music. And I listened to that thing for nine months. Not every day, but I listened to it a lot. I took a bus from Paris to Athens, and I listened to it most of the way because I didn't 
know anyone, and I didn't speak a lot of those languages. So I, I read books and I listened, and to, listened to, to Roxy music. Yeah, to, to Avalon. And, and that song brings back so many memories of of Greece or of Berlin or of Italy or London or all these different places. And that's kind of that, you know, mental trigger that that gets tripped when you hear music and you remember a place. Would the whole album do that or was that song in particular because it was also the big song? It was the big song and I think I just picked that because, you know, I listened to the whole album a lot. But that song was obviously most people's favorite. So it was my favorite as well. And your friend doesn't know this story? Not really. Not at all. <laughs> she knows I'm thankful for the Walkman and I still have that Walkman. Really? Yes, by the way. Yeah. Huh. Um, I don't have the cassette tape, but I – because it actually the cassette tape um, got completely messed up. Because you played it too often or – Yeah, it just got all tangled up in the reels and I – probably about six or seven months in, I, I couldn't hear it anymore. Hmm. But then I, at the same time, I was like, OK, that's done. I'm going to move on. The universe told me to stop listening yeah. to this album. I'm going to listen to something else. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, the whole lazier Zen monk thing really resonates with me. Yeah. I feel, I feel right. like I'm one or the other too sometimes. Well, <laughs> us lazy people can say we're practicing Zen, <laughs> letting the world carry us along. Um, so uh, let's talk about art. Tell us about the art guys. Well, the I mean, art- I know it's a lot. It's a big, you know, where do you start? But just, mm-hmm. you know, inform our listeners who might not be familiar. Well, I went to the University of Houston in, in the early 80s and um, – I met uh, another student there. I was an undergrad, and he was in graduate program at, at the university. And he was studying at that time. He kind of designed his own curriculum in a way. He was studying um, computer art and, and sound, and I was very interested in sound. Um, you know, I, I love sound, but not necessarily. What was I ever really musical? I actually had two bands when I was younger. And I played percussive things, and I made instruments. So that was what I was interested in, not necessarily being a virtuoso, but being somebody who uh, could make something. I've always been fairly crafty with my hands, and I made um, several instruments um, in different ways. But then I focused in on using glass, and I made this small glass orchestra, which was... Um, kind of idiotic because I didn't have enough people to play it. But I made about nine instruments, a couple of which were autonomous. I could pull a string and then they would play because of gravity, not because of mechanics. But, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, my friend Bert – so one of the bands I had was um, – we called it COS, Contextual Objects for Sound. And Mary Culther and Bert Samples were my bandmates. And Bert, I, I don't, I kind of lost track of Mary. I know she's out there, but um, Bert is a, a dear friend still. And um, I made a, f- a a blow pipe, basically like a Alpen horn or a just a no reed wind instrument that Bert would play. And um, <clears throat> I had some glass jars, some really big glass jars that um, I actually had helped make. Um, up in Seattle when I was up there for a while and blew some glass. And Thurman Statham 
a, a well-known glassblower and artist who's, um, he really taught me a lot. He, I, I was his assistant for a while, and he made these beautiful glass jars that, you know, they're about maybe 22 inches tall, and um, they have great resonance. So if you hit them with a, a, a rubber mallet or a wooden mallet, you get, of course, different sound, but a rubber mallet was really good. So I use those in the band, and I use those in the orchestra, the glass orchestra. Um, Bert played a 60-foot-long pipe that I made, and I had to hang it from the ceiling. Um, I used um, uh, hangers from the ceiling, and the pipe was made all out of Pyrex, lengths of Pyrex with joints. Okay, I was going to ask if you right. how you stretch out one piece of glass 60 feet. Right, okay. so it was, it, was, it was like a big, giant piece of plumbing, yeah. glass plumbing, and it got bigger as it got away from Bert. So it was about um, a half inch at his mouth, and then it stepped up to about four inches at the other end. And um, I made a glass chair for him to sit in, and it was five feet off the ground. So Bert would sit on this glass chair, and, and if you got it in the right light, it looked like he was just hovering. And, he, and I hung it so that it would be right at his mouth. So he would we'd get up at the chair and, on a ladder, and then he would play that thing. And it was amazing because I didn't really know what I was doing. I just was doing what I thought would be interesting. And Bert used to practice. I had a five-foot length of pipe that he, he used a lot, and he was really good at it. Um, he got really, really nuanced with it and could change tone. and everything. Kind of playing like a bugle, sort of? Like a bugle, yeah. yeah. Really, a lot like a bugle, and but he he when he played the big long instrument, which he probably only played maybe ten or twelve times because it was not something that was easy to install. Um, he would talk about how he couldn't hear the end of it because it was too far away, and luckily I got um, involved in New Music America, and in '86 we did this concert of my glass orchestra, and Bert played that pipe. And uh, it was it was it was amazing, and I had a couple of African drummers that played some African not African some glass drums that I made, and um, I had a, a jazz a couple of jazz musicians friends, and they played these two xylophones that I made out of glass, hmm. and it was kind of really random, but we had a few moments where we had practiced, um, you know, getting almost a song out of these things. And I also made a um, a big hopper out of glass that held glass beads. 3M made glass beads for the highway. So when they paint a stripe on the highway, they would yeah. throw the beads onto it. The beads would harden into the paint and become reflective. And I got a barrel of that stuff um, at Surplus. And then I thought, well, what can I do with this? And then I thought of making a rain stick out of it. So I made a hopper. And it, you know, I was using a lot of Pyrex because it was very convenient structurally and and for um, putting things together, making legs or making tables out of Pyrex um, and cutting glass and doing all kinds of things. But um, I had a, a hopper that I could pull a string. It had a wooden – I made a little wooden paddle that slid into a slot below the hopper. 
So where I I was the um, band leader, the York, you know, the conductor of the York glass orchestra. Did you have a glass baton? I did. <laughs> of I did. course, I you had did. several. <laughs> and um, I pulled the string to release the um, beads, and they came down some more Pyrex plumbing parts into a um, a, a glass box that was a, about um, five feet by four feet, four feet tall. And it had, um, I glued it together and made it so that those glass beads would fall down through this glass pipe and make the, the shh sound. And then it would fill up this box. But because the box was narrow, it was only about an inch wide, it formed a mountain or the cross section of a mountain. Uh, and it took maybe three or four or five minutes to fill up. So the audience could watch visually this mountain growing in like an ant farm kind of construction uh-huh. and watch this thing go and also hear the sound. So it was really, really enjoyable to to do that and to have that uh, experience of, of kind of a deep dive into um, making sound in, in a almost a Harry Parch way. Yeah. I mean, Harry Parch was a big influence, but... Um, I mean, the instruments that he made were just amazing. So, so tell us all about the art guys. Oh, yeah. Sorry, the art guys. Oh. I was okay with that side story, though. Yeah, that was a side story. <laughs> I went off there because uh, I, because I was going to tell you that Mike, the other art guy, Michael Galbraith, who passed away in 2019, almost exactly two years ago now, it will be on the 19th of this month, would be his two-year anniversary, but... Um, he uh, was very involved in music, and he was on the um, the board of New Music America. So he had these experiences as a um, as a uh, not only a, a musician. He was he wasn't a musician either. He did sound works, but um, he was able to work with John Cage and Pauline Oliveros and um, other people that were on the board and make these amazing festivals that traveled to different cities every year. And um, when it came to Houston, I actually applied and was accepted because they always took local people. It was a national thing, international thing, and a lot of people from all over the world would come, like if they did it in Philadelphia or Hartford or Miami. They, all these people would converge and New Music America would present for a week or two there were installations, there were concerts, there were symposias that um, they would, you know, talk about all this stuff. Uh, and um, Mike and I met in, in University of Houston, and from early on, we talked about sound. We talked about, um, the f- we were really just learning about the Fluxus artists at that time of our lives. But um, we were very interested in improvisational music. And, of course, my dad introducing me to jazz, it was a very short step to improvisational music and, and really crazy stuff that, you know, that you, the unlistenable things that John Cage would do, the prepared piano pieces, although I, I listen to them, but, <laughs> you know, broad audiences do not. But um, that whole that whole lineage is all kind of in in my background, but I wasn't necessarily deeply invested in it. 
Mike and I would make visual work. And a lot of times we did visual work that was um, concerned with performance and sound. But a lot of it ended up becoming more... um, The first few years we worked together, we just did installation pieces. Every quarter of the year, we would do either a solstice or an equinox piece. And we did that for a couple years. And they were very involved. Um, And then we started making studio work. Um, And the first studio works were sound pieces that were sculptural. Um, We did a piece called Rock Drop, which I was just remembering recently because of what's going on over at the Bob Rauschenberg Gallery, which is where I'm working now. But um, the idea of dropping a rock and making a noise with it, to me, is a, a totally valid sound work, even though it's very simple, very short. Um, so Mike and I were investigating all those things, and then we just started making more and more work and became... Um, we met in 81, uh, the first time we ever met, and then in 83, we uh, made the official first Art Guys piece. But we had worked for a year and a half before 83 on these quarterly pieces. Um, and we continued to do those a little bit. But um, the Art Guys then went on to make just all kinds of things, drawings, sculptures, videos. We did a lot of performance art on stage. Um, we were doing situational piece and durational pieces where we'd do something for eight hours. Um, one of the pieces that, that I rather like is um, to commemorate the equinox uh, in the winter. Uh, I'm sorry, the winter solstice, not the equinox. We sat at Denny's Restaurant for 24 hours. So we went in 12 hours to the minute prior to the actual um, solstice, and then waited 12 hours and got up precisely 12 hours after that precise occurrence. There's no actual specific time it happens. It just it passes through when you go through an equinox or a solstice. It's just it doesn't even have a second. It's it's just a it's it's just a shift, um, which is interesting in and of itself. But um, so we um, we worked together for a long time. Um, we got a studio together in 89, 90. We built it in 89, and then in 90 we started working together full-time, exclusively, and produced an, an enormous amount of work for the next um, 15 or 20 years. What did you folks think about you making art by sitting at Denny's for 24 hours? Well, my mom loved it. <laughs> she thought that she got it. You know, she she knew I was in that. And um, my dad was, he loved it too. I mean, they, if if you got your name in the paper, your parents like it. Right. Uh, Tell us about the exhibit that's going on now. It's, what did that, it's a call and response piece, but it's visual art, but explain that. Well, it's visual and and video. Um, It's video and and photography, and there's some text involved too. Any music? Um, Well, you know, William Wegman's a good singer, and uh, maybe we'll get him to... uh, Sing a song for us. <laughs> Is he coming? No. Well, I hope so. We haven't really ironed all that out. But, okay. <laughs> um, um, the, the show at Bob Rauschenberg Gallery is, is kind of um, a beautiful sort of unfolding, natural unfolding of, of 
what you do or what one does. Um, Wegman and I started coll- not collaborating at all. We were just doing this thing on on email, sending stuff back and forth to each other. And then we decided through Jay Dellinger, the director of the Bob Rauschenberg Gallery, to uh, formalize it. So now we're producing the work that was basically considered play. And in a way, the art guys were that too. We would play a lot and then formalize that play and try to contextualize it and try to broaden it. So as a conceptual artist, if I hate using all these labels, but as a conceptual artist, it doesn't really matter at all what the material is. It more matters what the idea is. So if the idea is interesting enough to pursue, then you figure out how to make that um, a reality. So it's from the mind to the, you know, from the beginning to the end is actually the process of making the art. And then the, the residue is the, what you call the artwork. Um, and conceptually, the art is the process of making it. So I know I'm kind of going off on a tangent, but to come back around, Bill and I have been doing something that we didn't, we know we're artists. That's obvious. We didn't really know we were collaborating as artists until we started to formalize it, which is a weird way to think about it. Because if you're an artist, anything you do is art. Yeah. So um, formalizing it just changes its presentation, basically. Hmm. And the same thing with music. Yeah. I, uh, it's funny. I guess I'm a conceptual artist because I've always thought like a photograph on the wall is evidence that art occurred. Is the way I look at it. Yeah, it is. So that's a Zen way of looking at it. Yeah, or a lazy I mean, way. Lazy. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Bill is in in either New York or, or in Maine, and um, he sends me images and I respond to them, or I send him an image and he responds to my image, and then we take those images and I've been printing them out and framing them and putting them on the wall kind of as they happen. But there's also objects that I sent to him in the mail, and then he'll do something with them and send them back. Um, So that's occurring too. And then there's, um, I have a weird bone in my body that is a poet. I mean, I'm not a poet at all, but I do write poetry, and I don't know if it's, I've never really formalized it. I've got a lot of poems stuck in my computer. But one day, Bill sent me some pictures of a um, painting that he had been working on. And I was looking really intently at it because I really like his paintings. And he's like a a funny trickster, which I really appreciate. And I was looking at the painting, and it was getting late, and I was getting tired. And I was looking at him on the computer. And then all of a sudden, this poem started forming in my head. So I stopped and I started writing. And then it was about 3.30 in the morning. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so tired. And I went to bed and I got up the next day, looked at the poem and started editing it. And then I sent it to Bill that the next day. And he was kind of blown away that somebody would do that uh, as a reaction to a painting that he did. And that's a piece that I'm developing to put into the into the gallery. So there'll be an image of the painting that he was working on and then my poem next to it. 
And that's a diversion from what we've done now, which is basically a pictorial ping pong. So the exhibit stay, it stays up through like the end of the year, right? Actually, it's been extended so by like, popular to like demand. March or something? Yeah, to March 26th. And so like you're back in town and so you're mm. – it's, it's ever-evolving is basically the, the – It is ever-evolving and it's, um, it's something that um, um, it's just happening and it can happen whichever way it does. I mean it, it's a very zen thing. I mean oh. lazy thing. I'll have to go by for sure and see it. I have to take my daughter by. We'll take yeah. the whole Three Song Stories team. Tara's nodding. Jared's got two thumbs or two. He looks like Richard Nixon, actually. Oh, poor um, guy. Poor guy. Um, let's, let's get to your third song. All right. Let's do it. Uh, this is the one you're going to tell the story first, right? Yeah, I think so because um, – and it, it kind of folds back into the archives. Wait. I, I was going to do some um, – Chair music? Experimental music. Thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I, just, me, I really enjoyed the. Oh, thank you. Let me catch my breath. So um, this song, um, and it, it, it actually goes back to the archives. So um, on our 25th anniversary, we actually it, – it, it was kind of a sad time for Mike because he had gone through some cancer treatment and he was kind of out of the picture in a way. We collaborated all the time, but he wasn't physically able to do a lot during the time that we celebrated our uh, – leading up to the 25th anniversary of the Art Guys. And I had this kind of wacky idea um, because I knew about tribute albums. There's all these tribute albums to different musicians and all these different bands get together and cover songs and they make a tribute album like to Leonard Cohen or to whoever. And um, – I thought it would be really kind of dumb to formulate a, a tribute album to the archives from musicians that are non-visual, mostly, by and large, to make songs about the archives. So I started sending out invitations on email, and Mike thought it was kind of... He's like, well, why would we do that? You know, And it's like, well, because it's the wrong thing to do, and that's a lot of... <laughs> A lot of what we talked about was like you do the wrong thing. You just do it really, really wrong and then it's right. Um, so it kind of grew as, as, as I was inviting people. And again, we have you know, fairly broad-based f- uh, friendships with a lot of different musicians. So we asked uh, all these different people to contribute to the tribute album. And then we did a tribute album concert downtown in an, in an outdoor – um, outdoor theater in in the middle of downtown. So some of the musicians came in and and played the songs to us, and it, and it was a whole bunch, a whole variety of different people. Some of the new music people, the improvisational people that we ran across, and uh, friends of ours that we met in different cities as we worked and traveled, and it was a wonderful thing. It, it grew to three CDs, and. Um, I have never put it online, but I'm going to. I promise. See, now I have to. That's why you sent me the file for this. Yeah, well, I sent you one one file, which was uh, a friend of mine. Actually, I didn't know him at the time that well. We had just become friends. And I liked his music. He's a singer-songwriter-ish guy. Very clever, very, very good writer. 
um, Jimmy Pizzitola, and um, I asked him if he would be interested in being in, in the tribute album, and he said, sure. And that was kind of it. And then he he shared me, he shared the song with me, and I was just blown away. Because what he had done is he did a, a he researched our work. He knew a little bit about it, but not a lot. And he went in and looked through the website, looked up all sorts of different links online, watched some videos, and he came up with a song called Tried to Cry. We did a performance called Try to Cry, which was a stage performance where we get up and we actually stand in front of the audience and try to cry. And sometimes we could, most of the time we couldn't. And it could be a fairly short performance, but what happens is the audience gets invested in us because we're telling them that we're going to try to cry right in front of them. And it really gets their attention somehow. And it becomes like a, it became like a fan favorite, you know, to perform Try to Cry. So Jimmy used that as his departure point, but he, every, every lyric and every line in the song refers to something that the art guys had done up, up until that point. And it's a wonderful little song. It's short, but it's, um, it's really well done. And I, I was blown away when he gave it to me, when I heard it. And he's performed it several times um, for us or for different reasons. And um, it's a wonderful little, little thing. The other people that were on the album were, you know, like I said, they're very diverse. But like um, Ralph Carney, who was a friend of ours, um, Joey Lee, Terry Allen, who's a friend of ours. Um, uh, there are some musicians in Houston that um, don't even perform all that much that made things. Um, it, was, it was a wonderful, I'm forgetting everybody who was on it now, but it was a wonderful experience to do it. So if you follow this somehow, we'll get it online. This song or all of it? All of it. We're going to put all of it up. All right, well, let's listen to this one. This is, uh, you said, Jimmy Pizzatola. Tried to cry. What's a man to do but all? It, it's so funny for me to hear it because I know all the references. Um, you heard him say, um, dip my tip in. I was going to ask about that right? one in particular, yeah. Well, that, you know, it's, it's such a wonderful life to be able to cross-pollinate and to interact with different people. Um, Mike and I did a, an evening of performance in 93 in New York, in Brooklyn, and we invited all the Fluxus artists to, to join us in this evening of, of performance. Um, we were in a show at the New Museum called Flux Attitudes, and Mike and I were kind of thrown into, or the art guys, were thrown into the Fluxus group because of the similarities in our work and attitude. And um, we had invited a bunch of people to to come, but um, not everybody could come. And Milan Nizak, who is a artist from um, the Czech Republic, he um, sent us a score, which is a kind of wonderful and, and popular thing to do for a lot of the musicians who are more visual. They do visual scores rather than musical notation. And he sent us this two-sided eight-and-a-half by 11 sheet that he just, you know, ran off, and he sent it to us as a score, and it was titled Paint All the C***s Blue. And then directions were to 
paint your penis blue and show the audience. So we had to do that. And we performed it at the green room in Brooklyn for the first time. And we asked for some volunteers from the audience as well. So we had, we had some blue paint. And we basically turned our back to the audience, painted our members blue. And there was actually a woman on stage with us. She came up and volunteered. But she had a carrot. So she painted the carrot blue. And um, that was pretty funny. So we turned around, and then that's basically it. And we've performed it four or five times since then. But um, dip my tip in blue and call it art is the line from derived from this Milan Nizak piece that um, was sent to us through the mail and performed in, in Brooklyn. So it's, it's very funny to me. <laughs> um, you said there were a bunch of songs, like 24 songs or something, or – uh, you said three th- CDs worth? There's about 32 songs. So these are all different songs that were made from whole cloth by people who you know. There's a few songs on there that were that were already produced and okay. were not necessarily specifically made for us. But, but they were still tribute to you. Yeah, they were tribute to us. But, but I'd say 85% of them were about us. Like Joe Ely wrote, wrote a great song about the archives. And to have... You know, it's just great to have Joe Ely write a song about yeah. it. Yeah. Um, you got a nickname that stuck over the course of your life? Diddlyaha. Diddlyaha. That's that's real. Yeah. Okay. Who, I, who calls you that? Well, my <laughs> my brother was. No, and you. I'm like, he might have just made that word up. No, I don't know. <laughs> I could have. I'm not that fast. Um, <clears throat> when I gr- I grew up playing ice hockey and. Um, the guys that we played with in, in the town were all pretty funny fellows. And uh, uh, this one guy, Norm, um, Norm Kudak, I think his name was, he gave everybody nicknames all the time. And our neighbor, Tom Fix, who was a dear friend when I was growing up, he used the nicknames too. So we all kind of had nicknames. And my brother was older and I was kind of in his shadow a lot, so I, I, he was Kabaha de Liaha, and then I was Mini Kabah. So I was Mini Kabaha de Liaha, but then de Liaha sort of stuck, and I use that still, but nobody contempor- contemporarily knows that that's my Is that like part of your password that you use? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Um, are you a karaoke-er? Not really. I enjoy it. And I, um, Mike and I did a um, the archives. I should say, I, I miss Mike so much. The archives did a karaoke called Inverted Karaoke, where we have um, ear earphones on and we play a song and sing to it in front of a microphone. The audience can't hear the music; we can only hear it, and we sing the lyrics to that song. And we can pick almost any song we want. And it's really dumb because we're not good singers. Yeah. We have bad voices. <laughs> and, it, and I've seen this in movies too. I mean, I, I think it was Eddie Murphy was doing it in a, a movie I recall. But as a performance art thing, it, it was. Oh, it was him singing Roxanne in the jail cell. Yeah, maybe that was it. Because <laughs> he had the headphones down. And you couldn't yeah, hear the music. Yeah. And, yeah, and when I saw that, I was like, oh, shit, you know, great minds think alike or damn it, why did I? <laughs> <laughs> But it was a totally independent thought to, to fabricate karaoke in that way. Jack, you ever seen the um, the silent dance parties? 
Have you seen that? Oh, I was going to actually mention that. That's funny you say it's that. It's a fairly recent uh, trend. I say fairly recent. You walk into, like, uh, you're at a festival, there's a tent, you walk in, and they hand you a set of headphones, and you can choose which kind of music you want to listen to, and you put it on, and you're dancing to that music with other people who are listening to that music. But if you walk in without headphones, you're standing in a room with a bunch of people dancing. Oh, I love yeah. that. Yeah. That's yeah. wonderful. I would I would make it so they had to be they had to have their eyes closed. It is it not it's not uncommon to do it inside in a really dark room. Oh, bumper yeah. bumper dance. Yeah. <laughs> Are you a dancer? Oh man, I can rip up a floor. I tell you what, I used to dance a lot. Uh, my dear friend Pat Alesco, who um, actually was down in um, in in Tampa, I mean in uh, Miami uh, last month, was um, part of the. Um, Subtropics 25 Festival, and I used to work for her in New York and in Berlin, and she uh, basically trained me how to dance, not by showing me any moves, but by going out every night. We would work really hard all day, and then she would say, let's go dancing, and we'd go all over New York and different places and and dance. Mm. Um, do you have any TV theme songs committed to memory that you would um, be willing to sing with us? Hmm. TV theme songs. Well, we can the, go back to Buddy Epson. The, well, the, <laughs> this, is, this is a funny story. So the Beverly Hillbillies um, theme song is a dear one, right? And um, when my wife Star and I, we our, our son Max was growing up, um, he demanded us to read him. We started reading to him every night. And then we couldn't not read to him or tell him a story. So he wanted to hear stories all the time, right? And one, I would always make up these stories, and he'd want me to keep going and keep going. And it was kind of a fun exercise for me since I'm just, like, making stuff up. And um, a few times I would say, well, let, let me tell you this story about a man named Jed. And I would just speak it, <laughs> right? He was an old poor mountaineer. He couldn't keep his family fed. And I would tell him the whole story. Um, and then I, I did this a few times, and then I told my wife, Star, I said, tell him the, you know, the Beverly Hillbilly story. So she would tell him the story, right? And, <laughs> and he would say, like, that's dad's story, you know? So we were confusing. And you know it word for word. Yeah, how are you know? And then... The, by happenstance, whoever I can't remember the person who who wrote that and sang that on the on the TV show passed away, and they were doing a um, a story on him on NPR on <clears throat> All Things Considered, and um, Star happened to be in the car with Max, our son, when when this she knew it was coming up because they kind of did a teaser for it, <laughs> and. Um, so they started talking about the guy, and then they play the story. Uh, they play the song, and and Star said, um, "Hey Max, listen to this song." And of course he did. And and how old was he at the time? I think he was about seven. Okay. And um, he just freaked out. He, That's Dad. That's Dad. You know. And then then we had to show him like, hey, this is <laughs> actually a song from a TV show, and we had to. Take him on YouTube and show him the, the beginning of the show, which was really funny. By the way, it's uh, it is it's Lester Flat and Earl Scruggs. Yes, that's like, right, that's right, that's really great. Does that mean we're going to sing it? <clears throat> hmm. 
Can I have the uh, the lyrics? <laughs> yeah, I pull up the lyrics. I think that's part of the challenge. Well, well no, that's that true. is the challenge. That's true. Um, I'm embarrassed. Oh, we're embarrassing you. You no, my stood vote. in front of an audience putting purple, I mean, blue, pa- blue, blue paint, paint on your penis. Right, blue paint. <laughs> no, I actually have something going on with my throat these days. It's a true story, Tara. You weren't here. That's the, that's the clip. That's the clip for the promo for this episode. Is that it right might there. have to be. Uh, that's too funny. We figured out, by the way, if, in case you couldn't tell, we figured out a way in radio to do, like, art. Like, before of course. Art. <laughs> of course. One of my favorite, one of my favorite um, events of the last 50 years was when the um, BBC, um, this was a televised broadcast of John Cage's 433 with the London Philharmonic. And they actually... Uh, for those who don't know, Cage wrote a piece on silence, which is not really about silence. It's about the the room or the world around you that is constantly making noise. And um, the the BBC actually um, broadcast the London Philharmonic on tel- live on television, playing four thirty three. And. You know, it's basically dead air, right? Yeah. But it's there's something there. You know? Couldn't do that on the radio because we have silence alarms that go off after a fixed amount of time. So yeah, they well, have to can, warn all their member stations. We can do that right now if you want. Well, you want to do the silence version? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got Beverly Hillbillies yet, Richard? Oh, I've had it. Okay. Yeah. Let me tell you a little story about a man <laughs> right. named Jed. Whoa, whoa, hold on. Hold on. Listen to my story about, about a man, man named Jed. Poor mountaineer, barely, barely kept, kept his family fed. fed. And then one day he was shooting at some food, and he was up through the ground, came a bubbling crude. Oil, that is. Black gold. Texas tea. Well, the first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. Said, Jed, move away from there. Said, California is the place you ought to be. So they loaded up the truck and they moved to Beverly Hills, that is. Pools, movie stars. Here comes the banjo. Beverly Hillbilly. Well done. Oh, sorry. Well done. Richard, go to... um. Saltwater Cowboy, Tim McBride. Yeah. Go to his folder and pull up the uh, Welcome to the Jungle. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, sure. You're an NPR listener, at least to some degree, I presume. I listen to it all the time. Okay, so you know they do the funders. Support for NPR mm-hmm. is brought to you by. Um, they've had a new funder guy for maybe the past five or six years, but before that they had the same funder guy forever. Hmm. And when he left, the, he was on an interview and they had him do this. Welcome to the Jungle. We've got fun and games. We got everything you want, honey. We know the names. We are the people that can find I'd appreciate whatever. That. That's the vein of your uh, computer-generated voice. In the that jungle. is very Welcome nice. The jungle. Watch it bring you to your knees. Um, if you were a cocktail or a drink of some kind, what would you be? Ma- a mezcal mule. A mezcal mule. Mm-hmm. What's it called? If it, we had had to, uh, it's a Moscow make... Moscow mule, which is in a copper cup and with vodka, but um, we substitute it with mezcal. Okay. Um, if you were a championship wrestler, what music would you come into the arena on? Um, you can't say John Cage's silence. No. I'm, I, if I was a wrestler, boy, I would use um, something by Wagner, I guess. Something um, something epic. Something epic. Okay. We'll, we'll let you get by with that one. Um, 
If you had to guess, what would you say is the song you've listened to the most times in your life? I guess it's it's uh, Roxy Music. I mean, I listen to it for months, and I very rarely do it. Actually, you know, I think it the, actually the song that I listen to the most, I think, is um, is Van Morrison, um, Astral Weeks, hmm. Madam George. I don't even know that one. Yeah, I think I think <laughs> that song I may have listened to more. Because I've listened to it for so many more years than anything else. Why do you listen to it so often? I just like it. Yeah. I mean, I could have put it on this list, but I didn't. Um, what would you say the most overplayed song of all time is? Uh, Happy Birthday. Um, are there any songs you'll avoid listening to for some reason? Well, there's, um, there's a couple of songs that um, my wife and I, Star and I um, – Whenever we hear it, we have to turn it off, and it's a uh, uh, gosh, you know, you know, that's funny. I can't even think of it. Can I have one call? Of course. No, I'm just kidding. No, of course you can. Well, my phone is off. We can we can edit this, right? This would well, be funny. Actually, no, man, turn your phone on. We're in no time. We're, if you're not in a hurry, I'm not in a hurry. It, we both hate the song, but we like the. The musician, and I can't even think of her name. As that's booting up, um, do you and your wife's musical tastes align mostly? She does not like Dylan for some reason. Hmm. I could never figure that out. We went and heard him play, and and um, she never has liked Dylan, which just blows my mind. She like anything you don't like? She likes a lot of pop that I never listen to, and sometimes it's remarkable to be in the car with her, and she has some station on that. Um, uh, I've never listened to before, and she knows every word to every song. I'm like, how in the hell? So she drives around and listens to stuff when behind your back. Yeah. But it's funny. We I I put together a lot of playlists at the house and and run through them, and they change quite a bit. And she typically likes what I have to offer. Well, call her and put her on speakerphone. Yeah. Are we going to put this on the air? Yeah. If she, you know, <laughs> tell her she's going to be recorded. But yeah. <clears throat> Hello, my darling. How are you? Good. This this call is being recorded for um, what is it called? Three Song Stories podcast. Yeah, no, the, for your anyway. For customer Star, satisfaction, you're, you're being recorded <laughs> for quality okay. assurance. Quality assurance. That's quality, assurance. quality assurance. <laughs> okay. I have a question for what you. Up? What yeah. what song is is it that we hate to hear, and whenever we hear it, we turn it off? Is this a trick question? No, no. Remember, um, the, what's her name sings it. What's her name? Oh yeah, what's her name sings that song we hate. Um, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> what's her name? You know, every time <laughs> that annoying song. We like her, but we don't like that song. What is it? Like her, don't like the song. What era is it from? What, what era is, it, is the song from? Is it a pop song? No, no, it's um. Oh, it's um. Not car, car wheels on a gravel road. No, no, it's um. But the same same singer. No. Yeah, who, got some data here, Richard. Richard's, yeah, yeah, Richard's yeah. going to dig in on Who's, that. Who sang "Car Wheels on a Gravel Road"? That was the name of an album. Um, Lucinda Williams. Yeah, Lucinda, yeah, Lucinda Williams, um, right? Who I love. Yeah. 
There we go. Google most hated uh, Lucinda Williams. Song. Change the locks. Fruit of my labor. Can't let go. Right Why is this important? Because <laughs> I'm being interviewed. <laughs> and this is a really important question. Well, this is South Florida, and Alzheimer's is rampant. So. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So they're testing your mental abilities. Yeah, person, woman, man, <laughs> camera, <laughs> TV. <laughs> It's it's um something my joy. What is how does it go? Oh yeah, oh yeah, my joy. You killed my joy. I want it back. You killed my joy. I want it back. That song sucks, man. (laughs) Oh, it's called Joy. Joy. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. No problem. It's on the album. It's on the album. Car wheels on a gravel road. Right. It's on that album, and it's called Joy, and it's not. (laughs) And and we love Lucinda Williams. You know, we love her stuff. Yes. Bruce Springsteen covered it. Yeah. Well, thank you, honey. We finally got to the bottom of that. I'm glad we cleared that up. Yeah, that was great. Was was it good for you? It was really good for me. Yeah, I'm glad I thought about that song that I hate. Now I have it stuck in my head all day. Good, earworm. (laughs) A negative earworm. Yeah, exactly. All right, honey. Well, um, have a great day in the Good rest of your interview. Thank you. We thank you. Thank you. Bye. Okay. If you could – well done. That was funny. (laughs) That was great. If you could broadcast a song into the head of every person on the planet simultaneously, who would it be? I mean, what would it be? What song? Hmm. That's a really good question too. I purposely didn't listen to all these questions because I wanted to be more spontaneous. Great. Now I'm regretting it. Um, it's like the, it's like the, the Voyager golden record that's out there zooming into the universe. Um, I think an instrumental version of Foggy Mountain Breakdown. I love that. Um, best album of all time. On my list, best album of all time, Astral Weeks. By who? By Van who? Morrison. Van Morrison. Best album due this morning. Oh. <laughs> hey Siri, what's the best album of all time? Hey Siri, what's the best album of all time? Sorry, I don't know the answer to that. Neither do I. You know, the best part is a bunch of people's phones just went from playing our podcast to <laughs> yeah, <that's> like <laughs> looking for an answer. They're all pissed off at us. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite band of all time? Um. Favorite band of all time. Traveling Wilburys was pretty great. Good enough. What would your 14-year-old self think of who you are today? Um, A pretty old 14-year-old. Any advice you'd like to give your 14-year-old self if you could send it back in time? Don't grow up. (laughs) Well, I've already got that one down. Um, buy those houses you were offered in 1991. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, well, it is time for you to recommend your three people who you'd share this with, if you'd be so kind, and who you uh, think we might be able to get. Well, I'd like to um, nominate Joe Chelly, Joseph Chelly, who was um, – part of New Music America, 
who I actually just re um, uh, I, I met him briefly back in the 80s and uh, I saw him a couple months ago and he's a musicologist of great renown um, I would like to nominate Mark Weinstein who is a guy I grew up with in Buffalo um, he has a um, unbel- he's a great drummer and musician himself and he has a great business that he started out in California called Amoeba Music. And then um, there's another friend of mine in Houston who is um, – these people, you have to try and get them to um, agree to do it. And I, I would like to nominate Mark Austin, who is a friend of mine who is a, a, a musicologist – or not a musicologist, a music alcoholic – Musicolic. I'd like to nominate Mark (laughs) (laughs) managing some bands and does a lot of booking for different venues and knows a lot about music and is one of the most joyous and positive people I've met. That sounds good. You know, there's probably a person named Mark Houston in Austin. There is. Statistically speaking. (laughs) Mark Austin in Houston. All right, Jack, that's all that we've got here. Uh, You've done it. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, just like there's no such thing as silence, there's no such thing as the middle of nowhere because we are all in the middle of everywhere. Cheers to that. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chinqui is co-creator and producer. Tara Callaghan is online content producer and host. Chris Duffis is our executive producer. And our theme song was created by Dave 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 Cowan and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. For this week's parting tune, we're leaping back one year to episode 139 guest, Island Surveyor Extraordinaire Andy Johnson. His first song was about growing up in Indiana and being surrounded by John Cougar Mellencamp. But then when he was about 14 years old, his math teacher brought in the newly renamed, without Cougar, John Mellencamp's album Scarecrow on this strange, shiny new disc thing. He was a music aficionado collector. We always heard that his whole basement in his house was just basically albums all categorized and mathematically. He had a database just to like control where everything was. And, and he brought in the first CD we had ever seen. Ah, it was like Star Trek. It was absolutely amazing. You know, it was the Sony, like kind of a brick looking player. And he brought the CD in and he passed it around like show and tell for us. And... You know, just imagine the first time you saw a CD. Yeah. You're like, what is this? You know, it just doesn't make sense that there's music on this thing. And he, you know, showed us how the player worked and let us listen to it and, and, and passed it around while it was playing. And you're watching that thing spin around like so fast. And so I always, that's always been a huge memory for me. And uh, I really like that line where he says, I know there's a balance. I see it when I swing past because I feel like we do that all the time. Keep listening. <laughs> Next time on Three Song Stories. And it sounds amazing. I should start dancing to a recorder. What are the chances? <laughs>